Today, I'm going to close out this 20-week series. It's been a long, long series. You've been with me a long time. Matter of fact, when I got here this morning, it was me, Andrew, and Josh. And Andrew said, hey, what are you going to teach on next week? You're finished. I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, you just finished out Revelation. That's the end of the Bible. You're done here. And so uh, I don't know what we're going to preach on next week because we're finished. It's over. It's through. It's Jesus is coming back this week. So we'll see what, what happens from all of that. But anyway, uh, you know, this one's called Victory in Christ, and I've preached on Victory in Christ. Uh, my, I wanted to start off with what is your greatest victory in life? So if you had to write it down, what would have been your greatest victory? Now, outside of Jesus, outside of God, outside of a friend leading you to Jesus, I mean, just talking about physical victories, what would have been your favorite, most favorite victory in life? Have you ever thought of that? I've been through several victories. I've seen people beat cancer, and we've celebrated uh, victory over cancer. We've celebrated victory over drugs, alcohol, pornography. Um, I, I uh, <clears throat> the last three years, have had the opportunity to be in A and M when, uh, geez, they'll lose to Appalachian State and turn around and beat Alabama. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but I've had the fortune of being at their big games when they beat FSU the year before that and, and just, uh, uh, you know, in the top five. And those were fun times. The, the games were packed. It was just a, a great, neat experience. I, I, uh, started to bring a deal this morning when, uh, I was in high school. I love to talk about this. We beat Littlefield for the district championship. They were picked 14 points over us. We beat them 14 to nothing that year. They had a guy by the name of Mark Ellis was their quarterback. If any of you remember way back in the late eighties, ran the hundred yard dash and, uh, was just an incredible athlete. He was a uh, tall, black, thin, uh, quarterback about six two, six three, and, uh, really had an arm on him. The last play of the game. I could have intercepted his pass, and I was running, and he threw it, and I grabbed the ball like this, and I just threw it down on the ground, slammed it on the ground because it was the end of the game. It was fourth down. It was over, and uh, I just, everybody just kind of fell down on the ground, couldn't believe. There's a big, uh, the next day, it came out in the Tulia Herald, which everybody reads um, around the world, and it came out in the Tulia Herald. It just simply said, um, the Tulia Hornets did what? And it was a special edition. I started to bring it this morning. It's up in the attic. I know right where it is. Uh, my mom had it laminated. It was a, a cool deal, and it's a summary on the game. But all of us have victories in our life that we'll just remember for the rest of our life. Yours may have been one uh, that uh, it may have been a war victory. You may be a war veteran. You may remember a particular town, city, or something that happened where you took it over or where your platoon did. Just, just these great victories that we have in our life that just stick in our memories that just make us who we are. And you're going to find out this morning how important it is to remember your victories and what it means to be victorious in Christ and to have a victorious theology that's behind what we do and who we are. Does it matter how we believe the end of times will come about? The end of times for the world, if you will, the end of times in my own particular life. Am I going to have victory or will I go down in defeat? What does this look like? Some of you will remember years and years ago, there used to be a commercial on about the Olympics and it was called the agony of defeat. Any of you remember that commercial? And the guy's on the ski run and he comes down to hit that ski jump and he's all bent over and going to hit the ski jump. He falls right when he gets to the, to the takeoff point and he just. I mean, just flies off that thing every which way. I still remember it as a kid. You know, here's the thing. 
Uh, many of us will say it doesn't matter. If I'm a dispensationalist, then I'm a dispensationalist. If I'm a historicist, I'm a historicist. If I'm an idealist, I'm an idealist. If I don't even believe in those things, it doesn't matter to me. It's not salvinic in nature. But look, it is somewhat important how we believe, what we believe, and why we believe in the what. You know, for some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard another teaching different from dispensationalist teaching. And many of you could teach dispensationalism from the books you have read. I, I brought a Bible here uh, Sunday, and I held the Bible up to the seniors, and I said, my brother gave me this for my graduation. And it's an old, worn-out Bible today. But there's another Bible that, matter of fact, I've got about five or six Bibles right now that are just completely worn out. And one of them, another one, is the John Hagee Study Bible. Did any of you ever buy that one when it came out? And there was a guy in Canyon, Texas that gave me this Bible new, and he was so proud of it. And he said, you need to read every prophecy because this is going to happen in the next five years. That's been 20 years ago. But I wore that Bible out. You know, it's, it's amazing uh, what we do and how we look at the different viewpoints. But many of you could, could teach just from, from reading your study guides in your Bibles today, and you've probably taught some of this kingdom theology this, this, if you will, this end of time theology. But here's the truth. I bet even there are just a few preachers today outside of seminary that even know the term historicism, praetorism, or much less could teach a different version than dispensationalism. Because just about every one of your Bibles has some form of dispensationalist teaching in it. It does make a, a difference because one is simply saying, get me out of here, Lord, rapture me out, let the world get as dark as it would so desire. And the other is saying, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Two very different thoughts in how we end and what victory looks like in our lives. See, there's a purpose of a heavenly thought and a heavenly kingdom, kingdom here on this earth that we have a responsibility with and we have a responsibility to in order to establish God's kingdom here on this earth. So today I'm going to answer basically three major texts that from the very get-go everyone was bombarding me with. So I'm closing this out with, with three, three texts here that are always challenges with some of this partial praetorism theology. What about Daniel? What about Daniel's prophetic vision? What about Daniel's rock? What do you do with, with that, Curtis? How does that fit into your theology? Well, let's just talk about it. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Now, you have to remember that Daniel, this is Daniel. There's Nebuchadnezzar. has already been set up. He's interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. He's uh, uh, an incredible prophet, and there's no doubt that he speaks not only to his time, but he, talk, he, he speaks to futuristic times. The cool thing about Daniel that so many people miss is Daniel interprets his own dream. <laughs> it's amazing to me. We write all these other kingdoms from what Daniel saw, and we forget to read the next uh, few verses where he interprets it himself. So let's look at it. Daniel 2, 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It, was struck, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, there's no doubt we spoke about a rock about three or four weeks ago, and I talked about the rock of Christ. We know that in Scripture that we also see Jesus is what? What do you start building with? Cornerstone, that Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, before we go that far, I'm going to skip down to verse 44, and let's, let's let Daniel interpret what he's speaking about. In verse 44, he says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. What is that kingdom? I mean, now, now he's talking about a kingdom that's never destroyed. Um, how many of you know what David's kingdom is supposed to represent? All of us, all of us do, right? It's an eternal kingdom. There's a reason why Matthew 1's genealogy is there. I, I wouldn't start a book of the Bible with a genealogy that loses everyone. But what is he showing there? That there's a Davidic lineage, there's a, histor a history, there's historicism there that is going to lead you to a place of understanding that Jesus comes out of this line. But here, what, what we see in Daniels, he just simply says there will be a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The only way that can be is it has to be God's kingdom. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. So this is a rock that's cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. So humanity has nothing to do with this. All right. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now, now, men, so many people have written on this and what it is, and what empire, and what that's supposed to look like. But Daniel really explains his own prophecy here. The head, he says, is King Nebuchadnezzar himself. All right? This, this head on this statue. And it represents the entire Babylonian empire. Um, if you study history, you'll come across the Babylonian exile, which is what happens in Daniel's day. The silver represents the Persian empire. The brass represents the Greek empire because he says these are the empires that are to pass. The iron represents the Romans. It represents the incredible military might. That's what they're known for. Ephesians 6, when we always quote Ephesians 6, you put on the shoes of the gospel, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. You know that's how, they, how the Roman soldiers dressed. So uh, they're Roman soldiers still today, um, there are many statues representing their toughness and who they were as warriors and the armor that they would wear. But that's who Paul is really referring to in Ephesians 6, what a Roman soldier looks like. The stone, it's cut without human hands. It means that God has to cut this stone. It's Jesus. It crushes all others. In Matthew chapter 21, the stone that the builders rejected is what Jesus speaks about there. There's a great mountain, and this stone becomes a great mountain that fills the earth. Well, what could that mean? There has to be a different way. There has to be a way that, that God is going to do some things. What is this mountain that fills the earth when the stone comes and knocks down everything else? It's got to be Jesus and his church because it's a forever kingdom. 
Jesus established the new kingdom, the messianic, and established his church to fill the earth. It will stand forever. You see, we shouldn't expect the world to become worse and worse, but as his church expands, his light should expand. This isn't escapism. It's not evacuation. We are called to expand, encouraged to stand as the kingdom of God, growing in population as we win those around us to the Lord. This is why I always tell young couples, be fruitful and multiply. I was, a gentleman, I was with a gentleman uh, yesterday afternoon, has seven kids. Anyways, keep going. Poor guy. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Praise God. I mean, let's, let's, let's get Christianity around the world. He goes on to say, um, or I have, I have written here, look, the population, as we expand, it should expand with us. Those around us, we should be leading to the Lord until ultimately the whole earth becomes part of this stone, Christianity, which becomes a mountain that fills and infiltrates every aspect of every life, the lives of those around us and the lives of societies and cultures. And look, I know not everyone will become a Christian. I'm not a fool in that. But we too easily accept the pacifist viewpoint. Jesus was not, is not, and will never be men a pacifist. And if we are Christians, and as I asked here a few weeks ago, if you squeeze a lemon, you get what? You don't get lemonade, you get lemon juice. If you squeeze a Christian, what should you get? You should get Christ. And that's who we present to the world. All right, well, Curtis, that's fine, but what are you going to do about the beast? What about the number 666? What about, the, you know, some Bibles won't even have chapter 6, verse 66, um, what, what do we do about the number 666? Because that's the devil's number and they're going to put it on our forehead. For, they're going to put it somewhere on you. They're going to put it on your hand. You know, they're going to put a chip in you. You won't be able to eat if you don't have the mark of the beast. So where did 666 come from? The mark of the man. All right. Or the mark of the beast. Either one. The languages. And, and this is, uh, you can write these two words down. Write down gematria, because that's, that's very, very common. It's very popular. You'll see it. S-G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A, gematria. And the other one is Isop Sophia, and that's uh, I-S-O-P-S-E-P-H-I-A. You guys can look that up. Outside of here, I'll explain to you very quickly what those are. But let's just look. The languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin all have a common characteristic. English does not have this characteristic. All the other languages, or at least those three languages, have these. Therefore, and what it is, is that every letter represents a number. Therefore, words and names themselves could be represented as, be represented as having the numerical values of the sum of their letters or their numbers. This system in the Hebrew, by the Hebrew-speaking Jews, is known as gematria. All right? And isopsophia is the Greek numerical system that correlates or corresponds to their alphabet. So John states, this is solvable by him who hath understanding. That's what he says in Revelation after he gives the number 666. Let him who hath understanding understand. So we said Jesus came first to who? The Jew. Come on, men. And then to the Gentile. So Jesus is, or a John through Jesus, is writing some, some things out so that the Hebrews can see 
who this represents. All of his early readers, all of the early readers of John would have known Greek. But for the most part, only the Jews to whom his warnings were directed would know the Hebrew. So they would be those who would have a more complete understanding of this number and why he gave it. What does it add up to? It adds up to Nero. You remember what, which number Nero was in the list of the Caesars? Which number? Six. All right. So here's Nero. And Nero would have been in power at this time. And from the Greek to the Hebrew transliteration, his name is Neron Kazar, which is where we get Caesar in the English. It's spelled this way, N-E-R-O-N-K-A-I-S-A-R. Through this transliteration, through this numerical value, and that number adds up to 666. Well, that takes all the mysticism out, Curtis. Well, look, we can still, there's plenty of mystery with God. I don't encourage people to be mystics, but don't worry. You're not going to figure it all out. But here he's, he's making an appeal to the Jews. You guys better look out because this is the one. This is the one. It's about to get nasty. It's about to get bad. We're already in it. And this is, this is the reason why. This Caesar. Now, some of your manuscripts, I, get, I got this. As a matter of fact, this Daniel passage was the first question I got after the first message I preached. The 666 continues to come up. But I did get this question here a while back. How come my Bible says 616? That's because that's the number of the beast. Don't take that one either. And I just said, wait, we'll answer it later. All right, 616, where does that come from? It's, it's because it was transcribed at a later date. This is the Latin numerical system. And through the Latin numerical edition, it comes out to 616. That's why. Nothing mystical behind it. The Antichrist in Scripture, by the way, is only listed four times. In 1 John 2.18, it's interesting how John first speaks about an Antichrist. It's not capitalized. He says, and even now there are many Antichrists. And in all four accounts, they do not refer to a future Antichrist, but all are speaking in the present time. So when we're, you're reading all this stuff and everybody's picking the Antichrist, let me just tell you, um, 25 years ago, 26 years ago, and uh, I, I, I should say I went to a church here who had a prophetic conference, and it was massive. It was packed out. And I went and I listened, and, and I've, I've shared a little bit of this story before, but uh, as I went, they, had, they were going to reveal at the end of this prophetic conference who the Antichrist was. And they were putting a name to him, King Charles. Some of you know who I'm talking about because some of you were probably there. And, and so it's amazing to me of, of all the things and all the pointing and all the, and the, ama- and the amount of followings that come from these teachers who stand up and say, here he is, here he is, here he is. And John writes about Antichrist in his present time. And, and in 1 John, he doesn't even capitalize. It's not an individual. Now, when we see the number 666, yes, the Antichrist is capitalized, and they are, he is identifying someone, and that someone is Nero. All right, boom, just a bunch of air went out of everybody's balloon. But let me say a couple other things. The Antichrist... There is an Antichrist spirit. There's no doubt that's among us today. And church, we need to identify it and we do need to name it. 
I don't think it's as much of a personhood as it is a spirit that, that people fall under and are seduced by. The Antichrist, remember, is Antichrist, so it does everything in opposition to Christ, but many times it looks like Christ. Eloise wore a short shirt the other day. I'm going to have some made. She just showed up at our pastor's table, and I just happened to notice what it said. But right across the front, it said, um, love, and had the equal sign crossed out, and love on the other side. So it looked like love equals love, but it was crossed out. And then underneath it, it said, God equals love. Because the world will try to even redefine love as tolerance, as something it's, it's never been defined as with God. And so keep this in mind as you think about the Antichrist spirit. It will always be in opposition to God, but many times it will look like God. It will look like the right thing. Because what Satan is reduced to in this world is deception. Man, that's it. That's, that's the power he has is to deceive you from who you're supposed to be. Man, wait till Sunday. Sunday's... If I get through the message on Sunday, it might be miraculous because what I feel like God's revealing to me right now, what we call pride or confidence or anyway, I'm getting off. All right, just know this, evil lose, the evil will lose. We can't always see this even in today's society. It looks like evil's winning. We call evil good and good evil, and we're looking at a White House like I spoke about last week that has a very dark agenda here in America. Um, there's a great white throne judgment that we spoke of last week, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. So there is a judgment coming, and I just want you to know we are victorious, those who are in Christ Jesus. The other thing that, that has been mentioned, and I'll end with this this morning. What about in Ezekiel then, Curtis, Gog and Magog? Because what we have today is the alliance of China and Russia. And as we're looking at this, and I mean, you've got John Hagee, you've got people coming out of the woodwork saying, here it is, it's now upon us. The stars are aligned. There is no doubt America's about to be crushed, which could be true. I think we'll be crushed by our own government before we're crushed by anyway, any other nation. But but uh, what about this in Ezekiel? And what about Gog and Magog? Okay, well, chapters 38 and 39, there's no doubt you see some alignment from a, from a prophet, from the prophet Ezekiel, all right? And the futurists right now seem to be right. It looks like it's happening. It looks like this alignment is taking place. Is taking place. And if we identify these as Russia and China or Turkey, or Islamic countries, if you will. China is, a, is, to me, a lot bigger stretch, let me just say. But let's, let's just say that that's who Ezekiel's see, seeing here, possibly. They seem to be aligning to take out the United States of America. But I thought we were speaking about Israel and not the U.S. So now I'm a little bit lost about this. Magog basically means the land from the north. That's what the word itself means the land from the north. Now, um, Josephus, our first century historian that we've spoken about many times as we've gone through this lesson, he says that basically he believed that it, were, it, it would have been the Scythians, and they are bordered on the north by the Russians. 
And many in the fifth century identified these are the Goths who rose up from Germany against the Roman Empire. So here's the deal. If you read Revelation chapter 29 and 10, 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, you will see the scripture state that these are from the four quarters of the earth. Now, uh, I know I do have one Bible, and I don't know if it's a misprint. I had to go back and look this up. It says the four corners. But we're talking about the four quarters of the earth. And that's how they're identifying Gog and Magog that they're rising up here and going to take over. So um, let me just say this. Gog and Magog are not identified with specific nations at all. When you read it in Revelation, you're going to see it's not identified with specific nations at all. As a matter of fact, but with all nations and peoples is what it says in the four quarters of the earth. So all nations and people who stand against God and against his Christ, they will at many times, have their day, if you will. It looks like they win, but one day they will all perish. And those in Christ, the promise for those who are in Christ, will reign. So we're not looking necessarily at trying to name countries and who Gog and Magog truly are. What we're doing is looking at peoples who are falling under the Antichrist spirit. So what does your greatest victory look like in your life? You see, one day it will look like this. In Revelation 21, 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamp and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, that's our heaven on earth, and that should be what we're shooting for because this is victory in Christ. So we need to have a victorious eschatology, if you will. We need to know the Word of God and make His Word known to the nations. Amen? There are some questions on your table. You're welcome to go through those with your table leaders. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this message series. It's been a great time. And Lord, we just pray that as we grow in you and we grow in your Word, Father, your truth will become more evident in our lives. Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name. Amen.